2: On today's show, actor Devin Sawa. The Idle hand star talks voicing Casper in the 1995 film.
3: Universal would send me to do these things in New York and they'd give me a box of t-shirts and I was the face of Casper. And this poor kid that did the voice for, for, you know, three months just got the shaft.
2: The duality of loving and sometimes loathing his status as a former teen heartthrob.
3: IFC picked it up and they released this press release that says something in something in the words of like Hunter Hunter starring ex-teen heartthrob Devin Sawa and I'm like what and I got so mad and I called my agents and I called my manager They're like how dare they I'm a serious actor this is horrible and then the next day I found myself on Twitter like reposting a Casper meme.
2: Getting sober.
3: When I heard I wasn't coming back for Final Destination 2 and my agents kind of took me aside and they said you know you, you need to go figure out what you want to do and, and I agreed and Went back to Vancouver and partied a little more still and just got to the point where I was like, look, you know, this isn't, you know, this isn't fun anymore. And and uh, that was it, I just quit, done. And turned my whole life around.
2: And of course, his incredibly formative nude scene in the iconic 1995 coming of age film, Now
3: and Then. If a studio tried to pull that off today, we would have QAnon standing outside their gates. You know what I mean? Shut up, Evan. Shut up, Evan. Shut up, Evan. Hey, shut up, Evan. Hey, good people.
2: What's up? It's Evan Ross Katz, and you are listening to Shut Up, Evan, a podcast about gay shit and internet culture. I am Evan Ross Katz, and I am joined once again by my producer, Matt, a.k.a. Snormageddon. Matt, how are you?
1: I'm good. Thank you for asking. I am uh, more rested than the last episode we recorded, um, and uh, I'm really excited. I want to give a quick thank you to the listeners. I got a few, uh, a bunch more donations on Extra Life afterwards. We broke $1,000, and so thank you so much. That means the world to me. It's for a really good cause. But other than that, I'm doing good. Um, as of today, I secured a PlayStation 5 for myself. It seems so trivial in the scheme of things, but honestly, it makes me happy. Um, at Cole on Coles at 1 a.m. last night, a friend of mine bought one, and he posted on Twitter about it. And it's like, oh, my God. And I checked, and I got it.
2: That's it's incredible. So Listen, yeah. it's the Simple Joys right now. So if you can find <laughs> right. them, take them.
1: But I would love to know. I hear that there might be some news that you want to share.
2: There's a little bit of news. Um, <laughs> yes. Uh, so... It's been going on a little bit behind the scenes uh, very quickly, and I don't want to take up too much time talking about it, but I am going to be writing uh, my very first book, a book about Buffy the Vampire Slayer, a show that you might have heard us talking about on this here podcast. Um, It is going to be uh, timed up to the 25th anniversary of the show, which is happening in March 2022. It is going to be... Part oral history, part critical analysis, part fan notes. Um, It's going to include interviews with the cast and the creative team, as well as interviews with fans of the show, including some very famous fans of the show, and also just dissecting Buffy's relationship with gender and race and sexuality and fashion and looking at the show through the prism of 2020. It is a show that I have... It's been a prominent part of my life for two of the three decades that I've been on this earth, and... It's funny how life happens um, that this opportunity came to me and that I'm going to get to, I mean, it's honestly, it's like, it feels like I'm going to do my life's work right now. And so I'm really excited to dive in. I plan to have more cast members on the show in the back half of this season. So if you are a Buffy fan, you've come to the right place. If you are not a Buffy fan, now is the time. Although you technically have two years to get on board. But yeah, I'm really excited. It's going to be with Hachette Books. Um, They did Ronan Farrow's um, Catch and Kill. And a number of other great books. It's funny, my boyfriend and I, we were going through all of the books on our bookshelf and being like, which ones are Hachette? And a lot of them were like the ones I love, like David Sedaris, etc. So amazing. I'm really, really excited. And uh, I'm excited to like rewatch the show once again, and sort of uh, have an all new perspective and just to get into research mode, because that is my favorite place. Speaking of research mode, <laughs> our topic today um required a lot of research because of how many tentacles it has. And so that topic is Harry Styles and his December 2020 Vogue magazine cover which has people shook for many reasons which we will get into. But let me start by asking Matt, are you you've seen the cover, I imagine. Are yes. you aware of all of the conversation that has ensued?
1: Yeah, I don't think I'm anywhere near experienced enough to talk about it in great detail, and that's why you're here. But, like, the sense I got... So Harry Styles is in a beautiful dress in the in the cover, and he looks phenomenal. And But the discourse seems to be around, like, he is, as far as we know, a straight man appearing in a dress. He's cis, for sure. And the conversation, like, people... Are celebrating it some people are pushing back against it like why are we celebrating this person in a dress but then that leads to the conversations about well what is particularly feminine about a dress mm. why can't dresses be masculine and the conversation seems to be exploring like when people do big statements like this is it a publicity stunt is it not and is it okay and is it taking away from the people who are trying to make a statement or just trying to live and live differently um, and I don't know that I fall in a particular place. It's hard. Like, of course, I believe that men wearing dresses can be as masculine as men wearing anything else. If you, I feel like masculine is deter, determined by if you identify as male and what you do as a male. There's no right answer to being masculine. I think it's how you interpret it, your own masculinity. Um, and anyone can be masculine, no matter what your gender that you do or don't identify as. Uh, And so things like this bring it back to the binary. And, you know, that's the biggest problem, I think, is like people just want to go man in a dress. That's drag Mm
2: -hmm.
1: when it doesn't have to be. It could just be a guy wearing a dress and looking lovely. Uh, so that's kind of where I am. You know, I I I could fall on one harder side or the other, but I'm also not a giant Harry Styles fan. I like his music. I think Watermelon Watermelon Sugar is catchy and lovely. Agreed. I love Adore You. Um, it actually just got released as a song in Fuser, which is a DJ video game I've been playing and sounds really great. But I don't I, I don't I'm not I'm not like I don't have a hill to die on with this one because I'm not a diehard fan either. But I'm definitely curious to know what you've uncovered and your thoughts and the things that have come up.
2: Yeah, I I too, I don't have a hill to die on, but I am fascinated by the discourse. Um, I think Harry Styles occupies a unique like fame space in 2020 in Mm -hmm. that he has the ability and I use air quotes since I'm not sure he'd characterize it this way but he has the ability to get people that don't care about him to care about the things he does um and that is something that I don't think a lot of people can say that don't um receive the same scrutiny that someone like he does I think someone similar to that is like a Taylor Swift where it's like every action that they do is seen to people as Every action is seen as either an action with which they have a positive or negative feeling or an inaction that they are that they are somehow pressed about. And such was the case with this Vogue magazine cover, which put Harry in, as you mentioned, this Gucci dress, it is also quite historic for being the first very first Vogue cover to feature a solo man. Mm -hmm. Now, For historical context, Richard Gere, George Clooney, LeBron James, Ryan Lochte, Kanye West, Ben Stiller, Ashton Eaton, Zayn Malik, and Justin Bieber in that order have all graced the cover of Vogue, but were always featured alongside a woman or women. Um, and Styles got folks talking, not just for landing the Vogue cover, but for doing so, as we both mentioned, in this Gucci dress. And this is no surprise to anyone that knows Harry Styles, since Styles has appeared in Gucci campaigns and fashion films and is close friends with creative director of Gucci, Alessandro Michel, um, and has worn dresses before and has genuine, g- generally had a style which can typically, I guess one might call it sort of gender ambivalent, I want to say. I I, I I. don't like assigning gender to clothing because it doesn't have gender, but I do understand that in order to have this conversation, we do have to recognize that many people see certain garments as being worn by one gender or another. Um, yeah. So, yeah. So... The, the there is no surprise aspect of this conversation that to me is the specter over everything that we're going to talk about it's the right. keep coming back it's the thing that i keep coming back to during any thread of this conversation is how unsurprising every aspect of all of this is from the cover to the response to the standing to the backlash all of it so the cover comes out People have a lot of opinions from the jump. I posted about it on my Instagram, calling it a serve, as I am prone to do. And this pissed some people off. We have a whole Lil Nas X right there, the vixen commented. Others called out the cover for queer baiting, noting that many non-cis white gay members of the community, particularly trans femmes of color, are not granted the same accolades when they dress this way in their everyday lives. And this is true. Mm -hmm. I can't speak for others, obviously, but I can speak for myself. I like the way he dresses. I think two opposing truths can exist together. I can want a Vogue cover featuring trans femmes of color in Lueve Fall Winter 2021 and love a Harry Styles Gucci dress Vogue cover moment. I think that's part of the conversation that exhausts me is how and becomes or. Vogue did not break barriers for gender here. They broke barriers for themselves, which is super easy and maybe not worthy of praise for any of your metrics, but it is historic for a magazine that's been around for 125 years. Whether or not that is progressive in terms of the, the overall uh, landscape, in terms of how we talk about gender or how we talk about the cl- inherent gender of clothing or masculinity or all these bigger topics, Sure. But this is historic for Vogue. And I think sometimes people don't really understand the minutiae there in terms of looking at something as historic in a given context. And then there's the clockwork backlash, okay? So we have Candace Owens tweeting, there is no society that can survive without strong men. The East knows this. In the West, the steady feminization of our men at the same time, excuse me, In the West, the steady feminization of our men at the same time that Marxism is being taught to our children is not a coincidence. It is an outright attack. Bring back manly men. LOL. I'm adding the LOL. Um, (laughs) You're pathetic, Olivia Wilde tweeted in response. I think you missed the definition of what a man is, Elijah Wood responded. Masculinity alone does not make a man, Zach Braff chimed in too. So did, of course, Jamila Jamil. I think this is an example of us wasting our breath. I get that when a dumb somebody says something Looney Tunes, it's fun to dunk on them. That's literally what I do with Kirstie Alley all the time. (laughs) But I don't get why, and I'm not saying I never do this, but I don't get why we give dumb nobodies our attention. And in doing so, lend credibility by way of consideration. I know these celebrities meant well. I don't think they did anything wrong. But I think Harry Styles is not in need of defending. I am reminded of conversations we've had similarly on this podcast, Mm -hmm. when Katy Perry and Ashton Kutcher defended Ellen, or when Robert Downey Jr. and Mark Ruffalo defended Chris Pratt. These are people with a lot of power and privilege, and when you see fellow celebrities coming forward to defend them, especially over things that just aren't going to be factors in their everyday lives, as I think it was Matt Rogers pointed out on Twitter, Harry Styles doesn't give a fuck about any of this, he doesn't even know this is going on. On. And so I think in those instances, it starts from my perspective: seeing people defending Harry Styles is as tired as the Candace Owens and the Ben Shapiros making or, you know, making fun of him in some aspect. Like I'm tired on all ends of this. I want to read this from Alok Menon on Instagram. They wrote, Am I happy to see Harry be celebrated for openly flouting gendered fashion norms? Yes. Do trans femmes of color receive praise for doing the same thing every day? No. Do I think this is a sign of progress and society's evolution away from the gender binary? Yes. Do I think that white men should be upheld as the face of gender-neutral fashion? No. It's a curious thing, this, holding space for joy while also insisting on a more expansive form of freedom, end quote. Period. Exclamation point. On Saturday, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, the great and powerful, posted her reaction on Instagram, writing, quote, Some people are mad at it because some folks are very sensitive to examining and exploring gender roles in society. Perhaps for some people, it provokes some anger or insecurity around masculinity, femininity. It does then. If it does, then maybe that's part of it. Sit with that reaction and think about it. Examine it, explore it, engage it, and grow with it period. So my bottom line is this. I like this cover. I like the cover, but I'm also exhausted by the ensuing conversation. I feel Mm -hmm. like a lot of the opinions flying around are based on reacting to someone else's opinion about it. So I want to end this rant uh, by reading my favorite comment on the cover. And it comes from my friend, Gabriella Carifa Johnson, the fashion director at Garage Magazine, who wrote, is the jacket playing a very obvious role to anyone else? I would have loved this gown solo. And I love that comment so much because it's sort of paying attention to an aspect of this that no one else has gotten at, which is that good cover. Maybe I would have done it this way. And the way I would do it is has nothing to do with whether or not the dress should be there or if qualitatively the dress is good or not. It's just like, maybe without the jacket. And I thought that was so interesting. But I think that one, what I take away from all of this is just how easily well-intentioned people are baited into defending something that is not does not meet the the caliber of of defense and yet somehow because these people like Candace Owens and Ben Shapiro have really been given such a platform to just say shit I encourage people and you know what there's a level of hypocrisy one could say because I think sometimes I give attention to people that don't Deserve it um, for the mere sake of thinking it's funny to, you know, to point out people's idiocracy and mm-hmm. it is. So at some point, at some level, I do get it. You know, I think, you know, there's some great, all of this, some gradient, but I think I'm disappointed that this big conversation happened again, because as I mentioned earlier, Harry has worn dresses before. Kanye has worn dresses before. Young Thug wore a dress on his album cover. We have seen Jaden Smith wore a dress for Louis Vuitton. We have seen men celebrity men in dresses time and time again in campaign images i mean i don't know about where you live where i live i see men in dresses on the street all the time so this just to say that i think by us and by us I, i mean people that i think are like me in terms of wanting to wanting there to be men in dresses on magazine covers i think perhaps the we need to drop the defending harry styles and really explore the aspects of the conversation that that exists more around why trans femmes of color or non-cis white men are not occupying that same space, the and of the conversation. That's the aspect I'm really interested in moving forward. So hopefully this Harry Styles cover of Vogue in a dress opens up a gateway for more men or gender nonconforming individuals or or, or folks who would not typically be seen on a Vogue cover wearing a dress to wear a dress. But I do think it's important that we kind of be more critical around the things that we want to publicly criticize because I just, there's something that like hurts my heart about seeing people waste their breath on defending Harry Styles. Perhaps one of the most like, Privileged of people out there, um, and again, a person who likely doesn't know that any of this back and forth is happening. There are many people that deserve defense that need defense um, from within the LGBTQ plus community, and so. I also just want to say though, like I can like this Harry Styles cover without feeling like it moved mountains. Um, I am not going to put this in my Vogue collection pile. I enjoyed it. It's okay to like something, to think something is a seven out of 10 and not need to continue talking about that. So anyway, all of that just to say, yay that this happened an unenthusiastic yay, perhaps. And I look forward to the next Vogue cover and i hope that this is a trajectory towards more forward motion in terms of you know diversifying the kind of bodies and people that are granted space like Vogue covers
1: yeah i agree completely i think that like on my first defense is oa or not defense but my the first thing i'll say is i want to uplift the voices that should be heard during these conversations because me as a cis white bisexual man i i don't like i don't need to speak about this there are thousands of me speaking about this when no one's asked like i want to uplift those other voices but also i agree with you i think this is something you really see actually in a lot of nerd fandom communities but it's impossible to talk about something you love but also call out its problems a lot of people don't want to do that a lot of people want to just tear things down and i get it and there are some things worth doing that on but i think it's also important to talk about a movie that came out 20 years ago that you love that you grew up watching that also is incredibly problematic i think that's okay and i think with this harry styles cover it's the same thing like i think he looks gorgeous and he's an attractive man and i think that it's a beautiful cover and i like it but i also think it's important to talk about these other things we see but not necessarily engaging with the trolls who don't care. Like I've never tweeted at, I maybe tweeted at Trump once in his presidency uh, directly at replied. And I've never since because he doesn't care. He's not even reading it. Mm -hmm. So why you're right. It's wasted breath. And instead use that energy to donate to a trans charity or, you know, uplift the, the trans voices who aren't being heard here, any of that kind of stuff, but to engage with a troll, like a Ben Shapiro who doesn't give a shit. Right.
2: Like, why? I also think it's worth talking about sort of people calling this queer baiting. Because that's a word that comes up a lot when you see, you know, male celebrities painting their nails or wearing a little bit of makeup. And suddenly, you know, big conversations come out. I know when Zayn, I remember there was that Vogue cover with Zayn Malik and Gigi Hadid when they were like, um, they're pushing the, the the gender boundaries or something. And it was like, there was a huge backlash over that. Um I think that queer baiting, um, I'm not sure there's an agreed upon definition that we're all talking about the same thing when we talk about it. I, yeah. don't, I think that there are people that would call Nick Jonas posting a shirtless picture on Instagram queer baiting. And I just, while I understand the premise of that thought, I just don't think it can be scientifically proven. I think it's like, Yes, gay men like tend to like and reward uh, conventionally attractive cis white gay guys with abs by liking those pictures. certainly. Um, but I just don't think it's necessarily fair to say that by a manly carry style was putting on a dress that they are somehow queer baiting just because to a lot of people they are dabbling in queer aesthetics. Um, mm-hmm. But again, it's like, Again, I don't want to like get into like the, the history of this, but it's like no gender, no sexuality, no community owns the skirt, right? The skirt just does not exist with gender. It's been worn by people of all genders throughout all of history. Um, so I guess I just ask those people, I'm not saying if you feel it is queerbaiting, you are absolutely entitled to feel that way. I guess I would want to sort of explore that a little bit with more with people to understand a way in which Harry could do that to the standard with which people would feel he was not queer baiting. Because my question is, what if Harry Styles saw that Gucci sweater on the rack and was like, excuse me, the Gucci sweater, what if Harry Styles saw the Gucci skirt or the Gucci dress on the rack and was like, that's the one I want to wear? Why? Because I love it. That's, that's of all the clothes you pulled, that's the one I love the most. And so the question becomes, what if if he's just choosing a thing he loves most with no thought about the queer community, good or bad, just we don't ever cross his mind. I guess my question is: um, is can one be queer baiting simply through thoughtlessness or inaction? It's like if, if to to me, again, my understanding would be that one would be queer baiting by tr- actively trying to court a queer audience as a cis straight person, right? And again, I don't even know how one would necessarily do that, but anyway, I think queer baiting is a topic to get into at some point because I think it's you know. Uh, The word of the episode, a lot of nuance. Um, But with that, we're going to talk about something not at all queer. Um, Our very first heterosexual man on Shut Up, Evan. I am delighted to welcome to the podcast, Devin Sawa. He is the star of a number of cinema's most classic titles including Casper, Now and Then, Little Giants, Wild America, Idle Hands, and Final Destination. He's also known for his role as Sam Matthews on Nikita and for playing the title character in the music video for Eminem's song, Stan. His other film credits include Extreme Dating, Shooting Gallery, of which he co-starred with Sarah Michelle Geller's husband Freddie Prince Jr., Devil's Den, Creature of Darkness, Endure, 388 Arletta Avenue, The Philly Kid, A Resurrection, Life on the Line, Slackers, and most recently starring opposite John Travolta in The Fanatic. He is kind, caring, generous, a great husband and father, both of which I have witnessed firsthand. He's got a wicked sense of humor, and I think I speak on behalf of many a gay man when I say he is largely responsible for my sexual awakening. He is Devin Sawa. Devin, it's so good to have you here.
3: Hey. Hey. It's been a while. (laughs) It's been a good year and something, I guess. Was it last year that I saw you at the Yeah. A fancy hotel? Yeah.
2: Did I, drag my I don't kids like still? I don't like spending this long of without seeing each other. It's just it doesn't do well for the soul. Yeah. Thank you so much for being here. There's a lot for us to get into, but I want to start with your social media because you are one of the kings of Twitter. And because like me, you like to troll people and you're very good yeah. at it. And you're also not afraid to be very politically outspoken and yeah. you engage with meme culture and you just feel very present on the platform. Yeah. What is it that you like, and then conversely hate about Twitter? Uh,
3: I feel like it's funny that because my my manager's assistant had a conversation to be about Instagram and Twitter and all that yesterday, and things I should do and things I shouldn't do, and this is going to get me more followers, and that gets. More traffic than that, and I was like, you know what? I don't do that. I I don't. I just be me and and say what I want. I think that you know, I was having another. I was having a conversation with a guy who has a ton of Twitter followers, and he was trying to convince me that some of the stuff I do is going to bite me in the ass one day. Like some of the 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 snapbacks or slapbacks or whatever or or whatever. But I, I don't know. I just like to be as real as possible, and and you know, I don't know. It's working so far.
2: Yeah do you get any pleasure sort of about putting these people in their place? Because I think for me, I know that, as dumb as it is, there's something a little bit cathartic sometimes about just taking somebody who said something really stupid and showing them their ass and just being, like, calling them there's, out for their, you know, lunacy.
3: Yeah, there's some of that. I, I, do, I do enjoy not letting, you know, if someone says something that's awful and really bad, then I'll call them out and let them get what's theirs. But at the same time, after I've done it, sometimes I'm like, you know, I just need to be bigger than that and walk away. But... You know the 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 dude in in his parents' basement that likes to you know come at you. He needs you know. I'm just not the guy to like take those punches and roll with them. You know, I'm gonna fire back every once in a while.
2: Totally. Now, similarly, when I was searching your name, you are one of those celebrities that gets a lot of online thirst. Are you aware of how much people thirst after you on Twitter?
3: No. What does that mean? Well, I don't. I don't know.
2: Like, you know, like the the male and female celebrities that people, you know, have crushes on or will share photos of or just be like, I want this person so bad. You're one of those people, I think a lot, especially for a lot of women of a certain age that grew, right. and gay man, that grew up watching you. But I yeah. just, so you're not aware that you are a popular thirst content consumer, excuse me, thirst content producer.
3: No, I, I like whatever you just said, I don't, I didn't know that. <laughs> um, I don't know where to find that information. I do know that, there's this there is a certain uh there's a certain age of men and women that that still uh I guess there's a nostalgic uh thing that you know that I used to and but here he is and he's reinvented and you know there's a I feel there's a little of that but um I don't know about thirst but but I I, you know yeah I I guess I get to uh I know, there's, I know there's a following that, that came back, I would say.
2: Yeah. So speaking of nostalgia, because I'm really like captivated by nostalgia as a concept. And I know, as you kind of point out, there are a lot of people who have a strong connection to your early work in particular because they came up at the same time and that you were a figure for them that, you know, through the screen became something of a friend to a lot of people in a lot of people's minds. I'm curious, what like, what do you feel about nostalgia as a concept? Does it
3: help my career? Not necessarily. Is it flattering? Absolutely, absolutely. Like, um, when you go into a casting office, you know, the, the, that kind of haunts me, the nostalgia stuff. The, the ca- He was in Casper and it was, oh, that's so cute. We'd rather have the serious actor. That, that haunts me. But at the same time, you know, I like that I've done all the, that stuff. As far as nostalgia without me, like, it's, it's great. I think that we, you know, especially where I came from, the 80s and 90s was some of the greatest stuff. That's why they keep, why they keep um, rehashing it and rebooting it. And it's just – it was such a fun time back then. It was, it was uh, so creative and so original.
2: Totally. And I think one thing that I find really interesting about your career – so I recently rewatched The Fanatic in preparation for today. And I okay. think –
3: Okay. Uh, Fanatic, go on, go on, go on, go on. We'll get into Fanatic. I'd love to. But I feel
2: like one of the great things about watching that film was seeing how great of an actor you continue to be. And I feel like, so when you talk about nostalgia, I think that you have a body of work that sort of allows people to literally watch you grow up on screen. Right. But also take on adult roles. I mean, I guess for me as a viewer, I feel like you transitioned into, you know, your teenage years into adulthood as an actor very seamlessly. Did it feel that way on your side?
3: No, it didn't feel seamless. Seamless at all. It felt very difficult. When I when I was a teenager and I was it was in those teen magazines. And I didn't really, I didn't, I fought those teen magazines. I fought them. You, you have no idea how much I fought and how much. Every time I did a movie, the studios would fight me. And you'd go and you'd do them. You get didn't get paid. It was they would ask me silly questions, whatever. And so when I turned eighteen or nineteen, and and I was becoming a man now, and I wanted to do my own thing. I, I mean. Idle Hands, Stan, SLC Punk, those were, the, that, that, those were fuck yous to the teen magazines. I wanted out of that image, and those are my fuck yous to that. And I did that and whatever, and I kind of got burnt out and took me some time. And then I came back, and now I'm trying to reinvent and get out of those, that image and, into this whole new adult image, which is the fanatic and, and you know the Stallone thing. And I got a few more that are coming out. So it, it's, it's tough. It's tough trying to reinvent yourself over and over and over again. And, and, you know some of these people that have done it so so seamlessly, or maybe it appears seamlessly. The Keanu Keanu Reeves, or yeah, is it Keanu Reeves? Yes, Keanu Reeves yeah. uh, uh a lot of these guys. It's, Leo it's DiCaprio,
2: tough. yeah.
3: DiCaprio is is he did it perfectly. Yeah, yeah I mean, I feel like he's flawless. like yeah, yeah. So. Um,
2: can you say more about the fanatic? Because you seem to have an interesting reaction when Man, I brought it. I,
3: it's 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 something that um I think it's better than than. It got credit for, I think that we were, because it was Fred Durst and because it was uh, John Travolta, we had a tough time right out the gate. Like I I, I saw two critics that were pretty, you know, they had a lot of followers and, you know, they're the Rotten Tomatoes guys. And one of them said, uh, this is going to be the shittiest movie ever. And there was no images. There was no, it was, nothing had been out. It was just, it was just Fred Durst and John Travolta. And it was already the snowball of like, you know what I mean? We wanna we, we, we can't wait to hate this film. Um, and I think it was better than than they gave it credit for. What did you think? Did you I mean be honest, did you like it? Did you hate it? I
2: actually did quite like it. I would okay. say so. My honest reaction would be I thought Travolta was being a bit schmaltzy in terms mm-hmm. of like playing up the psychosis of the character. So for people that don't know briefly, this is a film from 2019 directed by Olympus gets Fred Durst. Yep. Was it his feature film debut?
3: No, he did another uh, another movie that got a lot of critical acclaim. Then he also did the uh, the Ice Cube movie, which was a kids movie. Right. I can't remember the name of that one, but also also got good you know the critics like that movie too yeah. so he, it wasn't his first time he just kind of you know sailed under the radar and then he yeah. came out big with Travolta
2: so you play this celebrity John Travolta is a huge fan of yours and basically stalks you comes into your house eventually and chaos ensues because he's yeah. a crazed fanatic fan if the title you know doesn't make that obvious i would say one thing and this isn't specific to that film i think it's just that genre you kind of know where things have to go throughout much of the movie just because Either either through watching the trailer, but also just like, you know, he's gonna get in, you know he's a crazy person, you know he's gonna get you. But I kind of still like that. I found it yeah. really entertaining.
3: Good, good. It was what was it, was it fun. like?
2: What was it like working with Travolta and also like Stallone? I mean, in these past couple of years, you've worked with some of these Hollywood legends. Yeah. What is that like for you to be starring alongside people? I have to imagine you grew up perhaps watching some of their work.
3: Yeah, yeah. Uh, so I did a movie before with Travolta a few years back and it kind of fizzled away, but he, we got along really well on the film and he suggested me for the fanatic and working pulp fiction was, was a huge thing for my childhood. I was at an age, I was thinking was 14 or 15. We're shooting now and then and Christina Ricci and I would go see that movie every weekend for the two months that we were in Savannah, Georgia. And it was, it was the first time that I saw cinema, you know, working with Demi and all these people, like it was not just fun. It was like, before that it was, it was, I was a kid, I go to set, this is, all, like, this is the greatest thing ever. But then at 15, I was an artist now. It was like the pulp fix and look what they could do. And this is, this, you know, this is so amazing. So to work with Travolta was, was you know, and we, and he loves to talk. He loves to tell stories and the stories he was telling, he was telling me all these stories about Muhammad Ali and him. He was telling me all these stories about Marlon Brando and him, Sean Penn and him, these wow. amazing it, like, he would just sit there and, and like, you sure you want to hear this? I'm like, Ga-ga. you know, it was, like, it was crazy. Um, so that was, that was awesome. Stallone is awesome in a different way. He shows up to set. He's got a cigar. Uh, he, wants to, he wants to fight. He wants to, you know, he wants to, like, you know, do this whole, this whole action thing. Also, guys, like, we're Rambo and Rocky. Um, Sharon Stone was. Oh, my God artistically one of the best days I've ever had on set was with Sharon Stone. Sharon Stone played my mother in the first Travolta movie that I did. And she was supposed to be cracked out alcohol and this and that. And so she, she just came with no makeup and her hair all fucked up and she's in a robe and she stayed in character the whole day. And we just, we did these scenes that were just, it was like, oh my God, this is Sharon Stone. This is, and she stayed in it and she was awesome. It was, it was one of the most incredible days. So, working with these legends has been, you know, it's been a lot of fun.
2: Do you ever have a moment specifically when you're acting opposite Sharon Stone? And I imagine, you know, you're both in character, you're, you know, you're doing your job, but is there ever a part of you that looks over and says, holy fucking shit, I'm acting in a scene with Sharon Stone or any of these people yeah. you mentioned?
3: I think Sharon Stone was I'm a huge fan of her work in Casino and I've seen that movie a billion times. And um, when she was doing this character, I was like, oh my God. And when I was watching that film the whole time and and, you know, just a big fan, I never thought I'd be I never thought oh, you know, why would Sharon Stone and I it, like, you know, doing idle hands and that's, you never think that I would be working with Sharon Stone on something. And then the fight the fight scene with with Stallone, he he got the set we had the John wick stunt team had been working with me for two weeks and we choreographed this huge fight. And it was just, you know, very, you know, kicks and this and that. And Stallone just gets this out and he wants to see it. And so we show it to him and he didn't like it. So we went back for a couple more days and we did another one, tweaked it, whatever, showed it to him. And he comes back. He doesn't like it. He goes, well, let's try this. Let's just go in this, uh, it was in a cell We had this big fight in a cell and it was supposed to come out in the cell, but it stayed in the cell. He goes, let's go in the cell and let's just fight. I'm like, uh, Oh, <laughs> well, okay and and but the, but the but the thing was i was allowed to hit him so he's he's the, he's the good guy right so he it's all him i can swing he gets to miss but we just basically went in there and it's a it's about a minute and a half of just like what i used to do with my, my kid brother where you just like you know without the sound effects and it was like when i was doing that I think we, we did the first few takes and he loved it. It was great. And then we went, we, he, he, one of his notes was like, remember in the movie Rocky when I had him up against the ropes and I was hit? I was like, oh my God, did you just reference Rocky for our scene? This is amazing. So yeah, I mean, I don't know. I'm veered off from the question. I'm See, sure. but I but- love
2: that quality about you because I feel like you have like fan-ish quality about you that I relate to so much, which is that like you are both a celebrity and I also, my perception of you is that you love celebrities.
3: Yeah, I, I do. I have a I have a not such a love for celebrity because when I got in when I got into it as a kid, I didn't get into it like a lot of kids I'm I'm imagining nowadays get into acting because they want to be a celebrity. When I was when I got into it, there was no TMZ. People wasn't people. It was like it was it was you got into it because you I wanted to be in the movie Rain Man or Casino or Goodfellas or any of these. But I wanted to be like in that. That was what I wanted to do. I wanted to be like De Niro. Um, So I have more of a respect for these artists and Mm -hmm. the, the, and the, the work that comes with them. You know, every time I, you know, I'm sitting there with with Stallone and he's, and I think about this mass amount of work he's done and all the stuff that's made me smile and, and, and Travolta and everything from, everything from Greece to Pulp Fiction and and all these movies. And, you know, so that's what I'm really, I I just think they, they deserve a, a certain amount of respect and I'm, you know, and I'm I'm a big fan, you know. Yeah.
2: Well, speaking of deserving respect, I want to put some respect on some of your early roles and and talk a little bit about them. I think I want to start with Wild America, okay. a 1997 film in which you co-starred with Jonathan Taylor Thomas. Ken, sure. First things first, when was the last time you spoke with Jonathan Taylor Thomas?
3: We were on the phone, actually, not not but a year ago for the first time in twenty twenty something years. We did school together during that thing, only for three months, but we still we still did the school together. And he was way ahead of me, and I was two years older than him. Like he was he was a smart kid, and I always knew he was going to go off and do really, really cool things other than acting. Like he want, that's the way he wanted to go. And I think I'm I think he is. I mean, it, it was great speaking to him a year ago. He still sounds the same. He Still sounds like Simba. <laughs> um so <laughs> it was good it was good he's a great kid or he's a great guy He's a great guy now
2: now you were 18 when you filmed that movie what were you like at 18 years old you had five i, believe I was
3: I think I was 17. I, I was like, I was just pushing 17. I think it was 16. Oh, wow. when I sh- Back then, oh, wow. it took a lot longer for movies to come out. Ah. Like Casper, Casper took almost two and a half years to come out because of all the CGI. It was brand new. It, these movies would, would people were like, oh my God, Devin was 15 when he shot Casper's? No, nah, I, I, I was 12 and it took that long for it to, you know, drop.
2: Oh, that's so interesting. Okay, yeah. so when this movie came out, you're 16, 17, 18, you had five movies under your belt and had already mm-hmm. reached heartthrob status among many among the tween population. Um, yeah. What were you like at that time? Because correct me if I'm wrong, it seems like this was sort of the middle ground between you as being child star and you moving into like idle hands territory. This was right before that, really. So were you somewhat of a rebel at all?
3: Um, yeah. The great thing about the way I grew up is the small town where I was from, which was just outside of Vancouver called Burnaby. Those teen magazines weren't a thing there. Uh, Neither was any of my celebrity status. I was not any, I was, I didn't feel it. I I was just normal. I was just a normal kid and whatever. So I didn't, I got away from the Hollywood thing. But as soon as I turned 18, I was, you know, I, I was down in LA living and that's when things started to go, you know, get crazy and i started to you know get into hollywood and that whole thing and and i wanted i didn't want to be that teen guy anymore i wanted to do the idle hands i wanted to do things that had swearing or drugs or i remember being 18 and trying to convince my i had to convince my agents and managers to do stan they didn't want me to do that they didn't understand it they didn't understand Eminem. uh i wanted to do high times magazine i wanted to do the cover of high times magazine and no one did no one that's unthinkable high times magazine back in like 97 98 was like trashy and now everybody and their mother's done it but yeah that's that's kind of where wild america then i had a year year or two off and then it kind of just turned a whole different direction
2: so at that time because it's really interesting because it's like we are among one of the last generations or we are that didn't grow up with social media and so at that time when you're filming a movie you come home to canada Life must have returned really to normal. You're not, I think about these young stars yeah. today and it's like yeah. when they're not shooting, they're on social media, they're connecting with their fans, they're involved in the discourse that's going on. How much of a separation did you feel between when you were shooting and when you would go back to Canada?
3: It was a whole other world. Canada and, and my, my, my Hollywood life were, as, as I was growing up, were two different things. Nobody really treated me anything different in Vancouver. The, those magazines weren't on the newsstands. People weren't, they weren't in people's lockers. I didn't feel it at all. It was, it was two different worlds. And as far as social media goes, when I did turn 18, 19, 20, and I started going to, you know, club, first of all, I was, I was bouncing around Dublin's and, you know, Skybar and everything, 18, 19 years old. We didn't have camera phones or social media. The things that were going on in those clubs back then, openly. Like on tables in the bathrooms, everywhere. Just, it, it just, I'm, I'm sure that those camera phones save a lot of people now because you're not gonna do that. You know what I mean? Yeah. Um, okay, it so was, we- it was. It was a nutty <laughs> time back then.
2: That leads me so perfectly into my next question. Because I want to talk about partying back in those days. I'm not asking you to get super specific and name names. But I do want to ask, the last time you and I saw each other was at the Chateau Marmont last year. And we spoke briefly about, correct me if I'm wrong, you had partied at that hotel many, many years earlier. Yeah. Sure. So, you know, I'm not trying to incriminate anyone here, but I'm just curious, do you have any fun memories of parties from that time? The time that you mentioned before there was this sort of, a, cell phone culture, but also just paparazzi culture. It was kind of a little bit before it really hit the apex.
3: Yeah, there was no paparazzi. Back when I was going to the clubs, it wouldn't be weird to see Britney Spears or, or you know, Spellings or, or, you know, Fred Durst or any of these, just bouncing around these clubs. And there was tons of crazy stuff going on. I think Dublin's across the street from Chateau Mamont was the spot that, that was the wild, the wild spot.
2: Did you ever feel, cause I mean, obviously you're aware there's, there's a common narrative amongst child stars that, it can, that they can sort of fall into this space in which they become consumed by Hollywood and it sort of leads to a less than ideal later than life situation. Obviously that's not been the case for you. Did you yeah. ever feel compelled at any time getting caught up in the world of celebrity at that time and the partying, all of that? I'm asking specifically, it's like, was there ever a time when you started to feel like the lifestyle consumed you in any way?
3: yeah you know you hear these the, the cliche stories of child actors and whatnot. my child acting career was squeaky clean. I worked with everybody from Universal to Warner Brothers to all the way down to independent companies to commercials to this, and I never had a bad experience as a child was never taken advantage of as far as work money, you know pedophile whatever it is i i, I my childhood was just great when I turned eighteen and started. Partying is when things started going crazy, and by the age of 25, you know, slackers had just dropped. I wasn't going back for Final Destination because I was partying too much on the first one. I was doing movies that I wasn't proud of anymore. They were just, you know, they were just throwing me money, and and I was, you know, lots of money, and I would just, you know, phone it in, and it was, and I just, that was it. I'd worked from 11 years old all the way to 25, and I was burnt out, and I was partying too much. And uh, it was affecting my life, and so I had to I had to step away from the business. I met my wife. We got sober. We went to Southeast Asia with no plans. We just went around. We went to Thailand, Vietnam, Laos. We just kept going until until we came back. And then I I had no plans to uh, to act again. We got into the real estate business and and uh, you know started you know fixing up apartment buildings and whatnot. Um, and then uh, my agency sent me. They, somebody in the agency didn't get the memo that I wasn't doing it anymore, and I got script in the in the snail mail uh, for Max Payne, that Mark Wahlberg uh, movie, and I put myself on tape for it for some reason, and then I was back. I was I was you know it was a five year break, and all of a sudden I'm back in the business and going. So the, this, as far as the question goes, my child, it, the childhood acting, fine, it it really started to to go go south with the young Hollywood clubbing, 18, 19, I was, I was Stan. That was, it played every five minutes on MTV and I was, you know, the top of the world. And that's when it all started to go, go South.
2: And was it a split second decision in which you realized, okay, I need to rid myself of this lifestyle. Or did you start to feel over time slowly like that? This is not the path that you wanted to go down.
3: It was a long struggle for a couple of years of, of knowing that, um, look, I, I did, I knew I was messing up on Final Destination. I was, I was, uh, I was never hard to work with on set. Um, I was always, I mean, that that's a good thing. I never took it out on anybody. I was never hard to work with. I was never rude, but I would work these days and at night I would go out and party and then I'd get two, three hours of sleep. And after, you know, after a couple of months, it starts wearing on you and you start sleeping in and you start, it's just, Um, and so I knew that, and then they, you know, and then they gave me another chance and I did slackers and, and I still, you know, I was able to keep clean for a little while and then started to fall apart again. And then when I heard, I wasn't coming back for final destination Two, And my agents kind of took me aside and they said, you know, you, you need to go figure out what you want to do. And, and I agreed and went back to Vancouver and partied a little more still and just got to the point where I was like, look, you know, this isn't, you know, this isn't fun anymore. And, and, uh, that was it. I quit, done, hmm. and turned my whole life around. Hmm. So:
0: Cool fact: A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com.
3: There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with plush care.
2: So I want to ask a question about money, which I think is an uncomfortable topic for me at least, yeah. but I find it really interesting that you were making a lot of money from at an age before you probably even knew what money was. Yeah. And I'm just curious, like, when did you first start to think about money and start to figure out how to manage your money as someone who was a young person making money when most young people are not even thinking about money, let alone making.
3: So this is the other great thing that that the other lucky thing that happened to me is I, you know, my father was a mechanic, my mother was a stay at home mom and they were Canadians. I don't know. Maybe that, I don't know if that helps at all, but they were really, they were really, really, they were really great people. And they invested everything and they made it so I couldn't touch anything. I mean, I'm sure I could have got it with the, with the right lawyer or whatever, but they put it all in places where I couldn't and I didn't have the fancy car and I wasn't flying away every weekend to the vacations and I wasn't walking around in, you know, $1,000 shoes or it just wasn't. I, would, I was allowed to have a little bit and this and that. Um, luckily, drugs and alcohol were free back then, if, wherever you went, um, but they they – put it all away and when i was when i came out of the cloud and the fog it was all still there and um and so now i'm in a position where you know i'm comfortable i'm I'm, all that money that i made doing nerf commercials and casper and this and that is still somewhere you know
2: i love those Nerf commercials yeah I miss Nerf in general, it was just a yeah. you know, really fun memory. So that was, well, it
3: was my first thing ever, so that was the first thing I started was the Nerf Spokes Kids.
2: So. Mm. so that might actually yeah. lead into my next question. I wanna dial it back to 1994, your feature film debut, which might have, that, did that precede Nerf or was that
3: after Nerf? Um, oh, that was, that was after Nerf. Got it, it okay. After, oh, I, okay. I worked, so Nerf. In, I worked in, the, in Canada for four or five years before Casper, before I got the call for Casper. I worked with Ryan Reynolds on a show called The Odyssey. For a while back in, oh back in this, um, we're talking 89, maybe, something like that. I don't know. I was on I was on the original 21 Jump Street uh, oh back in the 80s. Yes, yeah, so go, go, we go back.
2: <laughs> Got it. Okay. So specifically in 1994, you make your feature film debut in Little Giants. I yeah. think in the canon of your early work, that is – Probably my favorite film. No. I love that movie so so much. I also feel like it doesn't get enough recognition. But I'm curious, how did that role come about for you?
3: That came from Casper was my first one. Even though Casper came out, oh. Casper came out about a year and a half later. It was all the CGI. I I, I put myself on. T- that makes sense because you look older
2: in in um, Little, Little Giants. Giants. And, yeah.
3: Yeah. Well, the the um, so. They did a nationwide search for the part of Casper, everywhere. They, they, they send it out, and somehow I put myself on tape for VHS tape, sent it down to Los Angeles, and a week later, I mean, the tape, I literally, I really think that, that particular tape landed on the, per, the right person's table at the right time, because there had to have been so many tapes. And uh, I got a call, and they asked me to fly down, and I met with Spielberg, and, and Christina Ricci had the final approval, and she approved. And I did that. And as I was shooting that, they were already shooting Little Giants. And they said uh, they were having a problem with the kid that was playing the um, Junior Floyd for whatever reason. Back then it was ruthless. And they just they could, it could have been as, as much as they didn't like his hair color or whatever it was. So they got rid of him and brought me in to replace him you know, halfway through the shooting and reshot all that stuff. And that's how it kind of, they kind of went back to back. They were both Spielberg films. They're both produced by Spielberg.
2: And what was that environment like for you on set with Little Giants specifically, that had a cast mostly comprised of young people? So it's not as though you have to come onto the set and be like the kid on set. This is a set full of kids. Did that impact your experience working on the film?
3: It's the difference, it was the first time I experienced um, the difference between the two types of kids in Hollywood coming from everything I had worked on, including Casper, because Christina Ricci was, you know, trained and she came from, you know, she wanted to be there and whatnot. Uh, Little Giants, they did it. They also did a nationwide search and they found kids out of the mall, out of the, you know, wherever it was. So they brought in all these kids and half the kids were there because, you know, they won some sort of lottery or something like that and their parents and whatever. And the other half wanted to be there. So by halfway through it, there was a lot of kids that just, didn't understand. Didn't want to be there. They, you know, their parents had. They wanted them to be stars. That was my first time experiencing that. You know, the the difference between the two types of kids: the kid that wanted to be there, and the kid that either their parents wanted to be there, or for whatever other reason. Do you keep in touch with anyone from that film? Uh do I? Uh, yeah, Joey Simran, who's one of the cowboys. Uh, our kids both go to the same school. Oh my god, like, that's so yeah, funny. Coincidentally. Other than that, that's it. I, I've seen Shauna Waldron, who played Icebox. I've seen her over the years. Uh, she's producing stuff now. Um, that's it. Yeah. What
2: about, did you, uh, did, if you followed Rick Moranis' the recent from Rick Moranis? Because I thought of you ahead of this interview.
3: Yeah. That, that I'm not laughing last, at what happened to him. No, no. That last thing that happened to him was, was very unfortunate. I, I I hated that happened to him. I, I always, he was dealing with, the, with uh, his wife at the time we were shooting Little Giants. That was all going on, kind of. But he was still, from what I remember, the, the very very sweet man that was always very engaging with us. And, and same with Ed O'Neill, they were both really sweet fellows.
2: Hmm. And um, it's funny bringing this full circle, you mentioned Ryan Reynolds earlier. I think Rick Moranis just appeared in a commercial yeah. with Ryan Reynolds recently. So, you know, it just all comes back. Yeah. So let me ask about Casper, a film I'm sure you've never spoken about in the subsequent years since.
3: Yeah, never. <sighs>
0: I told you I was a good dancer. Can I keep you?
2: Casper? I guess one of my biggest curiosities is were you ever in contention to do the voice work or I've just always been, okay, and why is that?
3: So they were already three months into shooting when. Somebody Spielberg, I don't. Know, somebody, somebody higher up said, "Hey, you know, we're not really digging this ending very much. You know, let's think about another ending." And uh, they hired J.J. Abrams to uh, write the the new ending, and he wrote this ending of you know coming back to life. The kid that did the voice was a was a couple, at least a year or two younger than Christina and shorter, so it didn't it just didn't make any sense to have him as Casper. They didn't they didn't know that when they were casting that voice, they were just looking for a voice. So they um so that's when they did the search and they they got me and I came back. But for the longest time I tried to tell people in the teen magazines and whatnot that, you know, there's this other kid and he did the voice, he put in the hard work and this and that, and no one no one cared. It was like, you know, what I mean, Universal would send me to do these things in New York and they'd give me a box of t-shirts and I was the face of Casper and this poor kid that did the voice for, for you know three months just got the shaft like last minute. Like they even even the rap party. They brought him in for a few hours, the rap party, and then they then as soon as he left, I was brought in to, to the second half of the rap party to to you know what I mean? My they didn't God. they didn't want it was it was pretty awful.
2: Yeah, very yeah. cool. Um, when you yeah. think about that movie, okay, when I think about that movie, I think of two specific things. I think about the Lazarus, just because I loved that chair, I wanted to ride in that chair. And then I think about that mechanism that they have that makes the eggs in the morning. And I'm just yeah. curious, when you think about the film, is there any specific scene or image or anything that stands out to you specifically about the film Somewhat 25 years later?
3: Um, I didn't, re- I, so I, had, I really didn't watch it for so many years because it yeah, was- Yeah, that was my next question. Yeah, no, I really couldn't. I didn't want to. I still haven't really watched the whole thing through. It's funny because I never really put two and two together, all the celebrity. If you go through the celebrities and all the cameos, I was like, oh, shit. I guess I worked with all these people. And you got like the Clint Eastwoods and the Mel Gibsons and all these. They go down the list. I, I just, I still can't watch it. There's so much like, I don't know. It was, it's just a weird movie for me.
2: What about though? I mean, you have two young kids. It's interesting. I actually was reading Sarah Michelle Gellar did a recent interview with Kelly Clarkson where she said she's just now beginning to introduce her kids to Buffy because they have been asking about it. I wonder when you're in a position like that, when you have these sort of iconic roles and you have kids coming up who are at the age now where this is the kind of movie they just might encounter for fun, not just to see their dad, just because it's a classic film. Do you ever have a desire to show it to your kids?
3: My kids have seen little giants many times. It, it's, I, I, I'm a little bit more weirded out to show my daughter, my son, Casper, because of the kiss and the way. It's hard to explain. Like that was me back then. That's not your mom. They're just not the age. <laughs> to, you know what I mean? It, but little giants. My my son loves it. My son like he watched Wild America a few years ago and he wasn't having it. He didn't want to watch it. But it could have been because he was you know three or four years old at the time but um i read that you
2: talked going back to wild america briefly i read that you this was a past interview i think the one you did with vulture where you spoke about the fact that that was ostensibly a star vehicle for you and jonathan taylor thomas like movies like that i guess they kind of do get made now there are still movies that are made strictly around cast around actors but when you got that role were you aware that this was uh i'm I'm not saying it's not a good film at all i'm just saying it's not the most brilliant script that's ever been no written. it's not
3: it's not it's got holes that it didn't age well that's for sure that is the guys true. in the bear costume and the and snakes on on little uh things you know it didn't age well for sure yes <laughs> you know it's interesting because wild america the, you know the the olsen twins really um i look at what the olsen twins did uh after me and i'm like holy shit that's how you do it they 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 said, we're not going to do the team magazines. We're going to put on our own magazines. We're going to charge for it. We're not going to do your movie. We're going to make our own movies and we're going to charge you to do it. And they made millions and millions of dollars. So here, Jonathan and I, I think we're you know in this big Warner Brothers film. Um, it was probably, you know, but the Olsen twins, they, they did it. They did it properly. I mean, I, I don't know if they're happy now with the way they did it artistically or whatnot. I, who knows? Maybe they are, maybe they aren't, but they sure knew how to figure out how to get paid.
2: Look, and I was going to say, even if they're not happy, they're rich, and there's something to be said about that, you know? Extremely. So let's talk about now and then. Roberta? What?
0: Um. Can I kiss you? What are you mumbling? Um. Would it be all right if... Can I kiss you? I guess. Great. You ready?
3: You want to do it now?
0: Sure. I mean, if you want to. Okay.
2: You mentioned the fact that you had met Christina Ricci, obviously doing Casper, and then I read that she was the one that recommended you for Now and Then. Did you feel a natural bond with her? I mean, I feel like you two were both two people going through these similar experiences, and it's not just a one-off, right? It's like, you're not just doing one movie, you're starting to acclimate to like what set life is like and being a young person in an old person's world. And I imagine there had to be a kinship that was brought about by having that shared experience
3: we we did school on both projects cast was very short but now and then was was quite a bit we did school together and so we we bonded a lot we were buddies we we went to see that movie you know every weekend pulp fiction i think it was it was a little bit before for me at least that, that you know the romantic it, i think it was more of a of a friendship than anything but i remember her being just the coolest girl and you know she was so into uh, red hot chili peppers and we were just kids man we just like little kids that we're into kids stuff and hanging out and, and uh, we ran into each other a few times at a, at a premiere one time when we were in our early twenties and she's doing great. And I'm, I'm you know, it's, it's uh, but I remember having a lot of fun with her.
2: Yeah. yeah, and also it's actually interesting. I feel like you two have had similar trajectories in terms of your careers in order in that same respect of being child stars going on and transitioning and becoming serious adult actors. I love her filmography. It's so so good.
3: Yeah, she's I I'm jealous of her. She's done she's done some cool from Black there's a Black the Moan, this the one with Sam Jackson. Um uh, 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 Black, you know Snake Moan? Black Snake Moan to like all like the Buffalo mm. the Buffalo 60s, like all those. And then she's got the bigger ones, the Sleepy Hollows. She's done a lot of (sighs) cool, cool stuff.
2: She really has. So another question you've never been asked about before, but I wanna have a more nuanced discussion about it. So that nude scene in Now and Then, I know yeah. you've never ever discussed it. It's a scene that I think is really interesting in that I don't think it would exist in today's world yeah, for a number not, of reasons. Yeah. yeah. And in November, 2019, Vulture's Rachel Handler said this about the scene. She said, quote, part of the appeal of the butt scene was the way in which Leslie Linka-Gladder directed and shot it. Saw moment didn't feel creepy or frightening, like, like most things having to do with sex feel when you're that age. It felt fun and goofy and safe. A collective peek into a future we didn't have to rush into before we were ready. So I'm curious what your thoughts were at the time and then how they compare to your thoughts today.
3: I remember it being a very, very safe environment as far. First of all, we were a very predominantly uh, female crew and cast, which made it feel a little safer in general, I think. I don't know why it just did. But also it was a very, very closed set. And we had these socks and, and it just, I, I don't know. I i don't think, I didn't think it was such a big, big deal when we, when we did it, it was, it was kind of, it was, I didn't know it was going to have such an impact. I didn't know it was going to have such an impact in the, on the, on the movie and, and um, you know, uh, uh, I don't know, it's, it's, it is, weird. but it, I definitely agree with you 100%. It would not, if if a studio tried to pull that off today, we would have QAnon standing outside the <laughs> gates. Uh, <laughs> you know what I mean? By the way, just because Q- QAnon, for the first time in 30-something years that I've been in this business, QAnon has, has actually been the only thing that's ever really offended me. I don't know how many messages I've, I've received from them and the thing that are just absolutely hurtful and bizarre and Mm. it just makes you think these people are actually out there living, you know, amongst us. They're just, it's just wild. It's is wild. Yeah. Yeah.
2: In 2015, during an interview with Entertainment Tonight, screenwriter Marlene King said that, this is about now and then, she said that, quote, the script was written and then we shot the movie with the intention of Roberta being gay. I know yeah. Rosie was really upset when they changed it at the last minute and we all were. And this just shows you how backwards it was and how much times have changed. End yeah. quote. I'm curious. It sounds like you knew that. I did not know that. I found that out in preparation for our interview today.
3: When we started shooting, I thought and I think maybe Christina thought too that she was playing young to me and then it got switched somewhere in and I I really don't, to be honest, they didn't allow me to have that information. I was just Scott Wormer, I didn't need to know certain things. So I didn't know it really is all it's kind of new that 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 storyline actually happened.
2: It's just interesting because it makes so much sense. I mean, obviously, with who Rosie is as a person in real life, but also that character and the tomboy aspects of her, it would make so much sense for her to be gay. But it's just interesting to think, and that quote leads me to think that the studios at that time did not even want the mere implication that a character was yeah. not heterosexual.
3: It would have to- it would it would have been an awesome thing in today's world since we're, you know, much more supportive and, and open and everything. I I guess who who knows back then, I guess, you know, a little more closed minded. Totally would work today. Yeah.
2: So I want to talk Final Destination. Okay. Let me ask you this, is Final okay. Destination a good film?
3: Yes, and I'll tell you why. I was just Please. actually having this convers- conversation with my wife about it. Um, so <laughs> Final <laughs> Destination 5, I think is the best one of the, of the bunch. Wow. But they, but they had a, a huge advantage. They came out 10, 10 or 15 years later or something like that. I don't know, how like a lot of time later they had the advantage of CGI. We mm. were doing most of our stuff practical. We, the bus scene and, and, and the outside of the windows on the plane were CGI. And, and like it was a big thing back then. But everything else, the train was a big mirror, the, the, all the stuff was, we were doing a lot of practical stuff. So to, to have that effect on the audience being number one, to spawn five sequels or four sequels, doing it all practical is why it's, you know, I feel like it was a better movie. But as far as the films go, Five is, I mean, Five is incredible. Um, I had so much fun with Five, but I think it's a good movie. I think, it's, I think it's a good movie.
2: I agree with you. I also, again, speaking of like genres that I don't really think uh, get made enough today, sort of like teen horror, you know, of mm-hmm. that time, The Faculty comes to mind as like a really great yeah. film. And I feel like that genre has sort of fallen out. Can you clear the air at all on why you didn't return for Final Destination 2?
3: I think it was a mutual decision between the producers and the and the uh, and my agents that I wasn't in a place to return, and it might not have been uh, financially, insurance wise, whatnot, the smartest thing. I, I can agree that I probably wasn't in a good place to go back for for two either. I've since uh, I've since spoken to the producers, made amends for my my shit on the first one. Although it was, you know, I I was just. Uh, a kid, or not a kid, but I was—I guess—a young man in, in the beginning of an, an addiction thing that uh, you know kicked it. But that's basically basically why I didn't go back. You know, full disclosure. It's basically why I didn't go back for, for two is is I wasn't in uh, I wasn't in a good place back then. Mm. So,
2: so old horror movies are being remade and rebooted at nauseum. Would you consider doing another Final Destination film or being a part of a reboot of the original?
3: I don't know. I don't know. I think that I've uh, moved on from Final Destination. I think I Never Say Never. I mean, Nev Campbell's doing another Scream, and it and it and it, Whenever she did the last one, whatever, it's it's great. They're not cheesy. They're not bad. I wouldn't be opposed to doing another Final Destination. I'm not. I'm not sitting at their door, you know, begging to do another Final Destination. It was, it was a great part of my life, or it was it was a great film, you know, and. Um, it's fine. I'm not it's like Stan. I don't I was approached twice since Stan about doing another music video and I'm kind of cool not ever doing another music video. I think I I you know did that. Yeah. So,
2: my unsolicited opinion would be that if they do another film, it would be really yeah. great to have like a cameo moment where they're like on the plane and someone just looks back and you're just sitting there. I think it'd be like a fun homage. and it would just be one day of work. Have you seen no, number 5? No, I haven't
3: seen 5. Okay. Oh. Just watch they no. they I, you want me to tell you? Yeah, you want, please. You and number five, after the, so the, through the whole movie, you, it's, you can't, you don't really, now, now that you go back, you can tell, but they're using old phones and old, like everything's very, the old cars from the you know, early 2000s, 99. And so all that, after the whole movie, they all get onto the plane. And as they're getting on the plane, they splice in footage, the old footage from, from the first one of me freaking out and getting off the plane. And it cuts the black. Oh, That's yeah, cool. Sort of. So it's all gone around. Oh, okay. That's why, it was, that's why five is so brilliant.
2: Okay. See, I fell off after two, so you're going to encourage me to. And is is five the last one that was made? You can just watch five. You don't have okay.
3: to. You don't have to watch three, four. I mean, three, three is great. Four is a disaster. I think five, but five is a standalone that ties the first one. It's a prequel to the first one. I mean, that's a that's one of the best things about it. So I just spoiled it for you, but it's. <laughs> It's, uh, it's a prequel to it. And, it's, and they didn't tell me that they, they you know, I, they invited me to the premiere. They called me like, hey, does Devin want to come to the premiere? And I'm like, I don't know. We'd really love it if Devin came to the premiere of Final Fantasy. I was like, okay. So I'm sitting there in the audience. I know nothing about it. And all of a sudden, there I am on the, on the screen oh again. My they've, God. they've spliced it. They've, you know, they've digitally enhanced the footage and they've got old footage. And so I'm freaking out. And the new guy's sitting there and he's, and they stay on the plane and I get off. So, you know, they all.
2: Wow. Yeah. Okay, I'll have to check it out.
1: I wanted to ask a little bit, obviously you are an actor who's done so much work and worked so hard. And I'm curious, especially in 2020, what you're doing in your downtime, you know, with 2020 being the year that it's been, there's this endless amount of reasons to try and escape or distract yourself or just relax. And is there any media that you've engaged in this year, music, movies, TV, even video games that like has helped you stay calm or center you in times of chaos?
3: And this is gonna be the, the, the nerdiest thing I ever say ever but I started baking bread from like I, I started making yeast from scratch and baking but that's what I've been doing on this quarantine thing. There's I was supposed to do a movie in Bali in September that got mm-hmm. that's gone. I'm supposed to go off and do another movie in November that's actually something that I haven't been excited it's it's very much like SLC Punk and um and idle hands. It's the same kind of, I'm very excited, but the only thing that's going to shut that down is, is COVID. Um, But other than that, online school with my kids is I I used to read so much. I read a lot and I haven't been able to read. I've, I've been on, I've, I've been on one book for a couple of months now because all my time is consumed with, you know, being a school teacher with my kids, um, it really is, it's pretty tough. Um, that and, and the baking bread just to, to calm my nerves. I love that. Yeah. What
2: kind of bread are you making?
3: Right now, so I started off with this with this old Italian lady on YouTube teaching you how to make just classic Italian bread. And it's very, it was with just those packages of yeast, right? Like you go to the thing, you get a package of yeast, flour, blah, blah, yeah. blah, 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 and it rises. And so I, I, I tweeted that like, I made my own bread. And of course the internet's like, you don't make your own bread unless you grow your own yeast. So I'm like, oh, okay, so now I've got like, like four jars of where I've started like fermenting, like flour and water and it's starting to rise and like, and you know, you, after 10 days it becomes, you know, this, this sourdough yeast starter. And then I take it to the next level after that. So
2: See, I this is what I love about you. Because if I got that response to something online, I would be like, fuck you all. But here you are being like, oh, okay,
3: let me consider. Like, okay, I've been corrected. I, listen, they're going to come at me after this one and be like, would well, you grow your own wheat? And I'm like, oh, yeah. Oh, I got a hill right back here. That's
1: amazing. That's wonderful. Uh, the question, though, that I should ask, though, is how is the bread? Now that you've been making it for a while. Is-
3: so uh, the first bread I I made was the, was the Italian one. And then I wanted to move on to this, like the Southern lady who makes this white bread and I'm not allowed to make it anymore because my wife is like, it's like wonder bread. I don't, know, so I'm not <laughs> allowed to make that stuff. So now I'm going on to the sourdough, but I'm trying to get, I'm trying to like, it'll be sourdough, then it'll be rye and, and I'm just trying to get through the whole, the first one, the Italian, the, the second one was good too, but it was like wonder bread. It was like this white, fluffy, sugary, floury. The first one was like this rustic hard, you know, for dripping your, it's it's, I, I I think I found my new talent. I might quit acting and just make bread. I don't <laughs> wow, know.
2: Wow. Listen. Yeah. I would buy. Scoop. Um yeah. so I, I want to touch briefly on the stand music video. Um yeah. again,
3: things you've never spoken about
2: publicly before. Yeah. Really I glad you People
3: I've had people make jokes about, oh, you're talking about that again. I talk about it all the time just because it, it, it's still the my favorite thing that I've ever done just because it was 3 days with Dr. Dre directing is I mean
2: Iconic. Now let me ask you, I think what's so interesting is how many people do not know that when we talk about things like Stan culture, that term derived from this song. Like that this character that you played went on to create a a piece of the lexicon that has literally become so ubiquitous today. Did you have any idea at the time, or like when, first of all, do do you think, when you see people use the word Stan on places like Twitter, do you make that connection?
3: Uh, no, I think there's, there's a good solid chunk of people that have no idea where it actually came from. Totally. I remember one guy that, that came at me for, uh, I wrote something about Stan, something innocent, I think. And he came at me from uh, stealing from, the, from black culture and whatnot. Uh, here's another white guy that, that's stealing from black culture and I'm like, um, I was stand though. I can't, you know, I just, I just think there's a, there's a huge amount of people that just don't know where it even came from.
2: Favorite memory from shooting the video.
3: So we were, had to go do the, uh, we were in, the, we were in one location, and we had to we were doing the car with the windshield wipers and I was screaming or whatever and we had to go down to the to the lake and I remember walking down this it was about a quarter to a half a mile dark highway with with Dre and like a couple of his dudes and the director and like it was like I, I just felt like holy shit I'm walking like with Dr like it just felt you know it was with Dre but I was I was an I was a 19 year old kid and and it was it was heaven Eminem Eminem and like the heyday and Dre and Cypress Hill was there and and D12 was there and it was it And also
2: music videos were so much bigger at that time. It was like this mechanism with which these celebrities could tell stories. And I feel like Eminem, so many of his early videos especially, really like they informed the songs so much. They changed the way you listen to the song.
3: Yeah, yeah the videos were a huge deal back then. They were not like, it was like TRL was like the, it was the thing, it was the thing. And so to be playing every day.
2: It's so funny to think about how many times I would come home from school and watch TRL. And I think back now upon the fact that I was just watching the same things over and over again. But for me, it was like, is Christina Aguilera gonna be number two today or number three? And like that became so important to me. And then I would sit there and commit to watching the video that I had seen a hundred times, but that was the culture.
3: Yeah. Yeah. Anyway, it was a great I, time, man. It, it was a great was. time. Yeah.
2: I briefly want to touch on 2005's Shooting Gallery, a film you starred in because you, <laughs> look at that face, because you co starred with Freddie Prince Jr., yeah. Freddie Prince Jr., husband of Sarah Michelle Geller. Do you sure. have a favorite Freddie Prince Jr. memory?
3: I, unfortunately, a very sweet guy, but I, I, our scenes were all not together. It's one of these, one of these you know, when you shoot in, in four weeks and they, they, they I, we just didn't hang out at all. And it's unfortunate because from what I did, you know, when we said hello to each other and when we were crossing, whatever, he seems like a very, very sweet guy. And I know he's friends with Seth Green and those guys are all cool. And I didn't get, I didn't get to spend a lot of time with him. Now, I'm
2: curious, did you ever cross paths with Sarah Michelle Gellar in your youth? No.
3: Never? No. Never.
2: Do you, are you familiar with her like film or television work at all? Are of course, you, like, Have you seen yeah. Buffy?
3: I've, I've not seen Buffy. Um, because back when Buffy was on, the only the only TV that I felt worthy uh, was HBO, like commercialist TV. That's yeah. all. It's very funny because the one thing that really changed in my break, the five or six years that I went away, uh, was TV. Like before, when I was growing up, it was like TV. Ugh, come on, I don't want the do TV. I just, I'm on my movie guy and then i went away and i came back and the first thing you know was 2009 2010 next netflix was just heating up and my agents and managers like you know it's a whole new world like what about doing a netflix tv show i'm like what they're doing tv on netflix that'll never work are you kidding me and it was just like you know and then tv just took over and now Mm -hmm. it's you know everybody wants to be on on that hulu or netflix or it's it's where it is you know
2: it's so funny to think about how quickly that changed and how quickly people forget about the fact that it was sort of like TV was seen as like oh you've re- you've been relegated to television right like you yeah. couldn't find film work so you'll do TV and yeah. now it's like I think people realize especially just the job security that comes from television work versus film work it, yeah. it makes so much sense
3: and I think I think a lot of it too is that there you know a lot more actors came to town but also a lot more writers came to Hollywood and so there was so such good writers and they went to tv and the tv just got better it just got uh it just got really really good yeah there there was
2: yeah a couple last questions before i let you go any roles you regret turning down
3: uh i don't know if i regret it so much but when i was doing idle hands i got a i got a script from my agency at the time and they were really really ramming it down my throat and i think i was just being a little brat and i didn't want to i didn't want anything to do with it and I wasn't in a good place with my agency at that time, and I kind of used that as a as a, an excuse to kind of get rid of them. And I, I remember screaming at them that this movie about a guy fucking his pie would never work. <laughs> it's <was> a horrible <laughs> horrible idea. And do not send it to me. And then and then you know a week later they would send me a new idea. Producers want to meet with you, please. Just you know it's just a great script. Blah blah blah. It wasn't a, a direct offer, but it was like a meeting, and they really really wanted me. They were really really courting me. and I was doing Idle Hands, and so I, I got rid of my agent, and that was kind of one of the excuses. And, uh, then I do then, uh, uh, American pie comes out a couple, like a year later. And that agent sent me a box, a FedEx box. And back then it was, there was no, you know, internet or anything. So he sent me a FedEx box full of the trades, variety, whatever else was out with, with all the numbers of how American pie was doing. And that was kind of his, you know, fuck you. Like you should have listened. But that said, it was the same producers that went off and did final destination with me. So it wasn't, you know, um, it wasn't that bad, but okay. that's one of the ones is a weird, you know, regretful. Uh, yeah,
2: like what could have been. Yeah. On the converse side, are there any regrets that you regret taking?
3: Yeah. Oh, yeah. I don't want to get. I don't want to get into it too much because then you know, there's a lot of people that put their hearts, souls in in it. But uh, there's a couple of the when I was just before I left Hollywood, and right when I got back in, that I was just you know I don't know what I was thinking, and they they were not the greatest things. Other than that, you know, I've been pretty fortunate. I've been pretty fortunate. There's always a reason. There's always a reason why I take them. Other than a few in the middle that were money reasons, but nowadays, like the the biker movie with Guy Pierce, as an artist, I wanted to work with Guy Pierce. I have a tremendous amount of respect for him as an artist and an actor, and I wanted to be a sponge on set with him. So that was the main reason I took it. Uh, Travolta, you know, obviously, I want to work really badly with Schwarzenegger. And so if you see me in like, the, you know, the gun for hire six with Arnold Schwarzenegger, I would just really want to work with Schwarzenegger. That's it, that's the, That's why I did it. That's, so I'm just foreshadowing why I did that crazy movie in a couple yeah, of years, yeah. that's the reason. You All right, I, mean? I can't wait to see it. Yeah. Couple
2: last questions. So you have these two beautiful children. You mentioned yeah. earlier that you've been homeschooling them during this time. Yeah. I've had the great pleasure of witnessing firsthand just how much of a hands-on father that you are, how lovely you are to both of your kids and to your wife. How has being a parent changed you?
3: Uh, yeah, man, I, there's no manual for this thing and, I, and I'm trying to be, you see the good stuff. I'm not gonna post the, all the, like the, the crazy bad stuff, the time where I may raise my voice a little bit too much or I, I've just lost it and I gotta step and sit on the porch for a minute. You see the good stuff. It's changed me just because I, I've got to think about, I've got to think about raising them properly. I got to think about raising them a little bit differently than my parents raised me, Like especially with Trump. They, you know, I, I want them to be on the right side of history as far as everybody in the world, racism. I don't want, you know, I want them to, to be supporters of the LGBTQ community. I want them to, you know, I want them to see the world and know that everybody in the world, although we all do different things and you know whatever, we're all people living on this rock. That's why we've traveled all the way. We go to, we go, we try to travel them as much as we can because I want them to be you know, on the right side of history. You know what I mean? Mm.
2: So. Very, very well said. Uh, last question. So you've had all these different eras of your career. It kind of makes me think about like Madonna, in that like you have this portion of your career in which you're a child star, and you have right. this portion of your of your career where you're like a teen star, and then you have this now portion where you're an adult film actor. <sighs> And I'm curious is going through the motions as you did is it a, being a child star into an adult film actor notice how I say star into actor because it's almost like it builds into something more credible I'm curious right. like is is there did that make it easier for you or harder it sounds like a little bit of both is what I'm gathering but like in your trajectory I mean one it's easy to look and say oh it must have been great that you had all those film roles early on to bring you into an adulthood but it also seems like maybe in some ways that held you back from t- getting the kind of roles you wanted at the time yeah what would you say
3: well the the um I was doing it like from going to the young to the to the child team beat all that stuff into the into the first transition to the um you know idle hands and all that stuff that was a very hard transition, and I was doing it and I was moving and I was doing the slackers I was in college and then I really kind of uh, shot myself in the foot by taking that break for six years because when I came back they shot me right back into that oh it's casper and and they got and it really was I remember going into this one meeting that was awful uh, for a showrunner who's who I feel is you know maybe he was just uh, maybe I don't know he, I got into the room and he started cracking all these 90s jokes like and I and I don't I'm pretty sure it was because I was you know. You know, he was like, who's your favorite Milli Vanilli? Who's your, this? like all these 90s things. Like, oh, okay, I get it. I see what you're doing. And um, so there was a little bit of that when I came back. Yeah, it's, 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 but then at the same time, it gets me into the rooms. I have a little bit of a name established. I got foreign value in certain places, I guess. So it, it definitely, you know, it's 50-50, I guess. But I want to know more importantly, what were Madonna's she well, well, how do you look? What are her because right? She ended up in techno, right? Is that where was she? Is that where she's ended now? Like uh, techno dance right now? Her,
2: she's in an alien planet. I, I don't right now is a confused time. Right now, she's prepping for her. Uh, there's a film that she's going to be directing of a biopic oh, of her life.
3: Okay, um, okay, her
2: hair is pink right now, and she is loving the Photoshop. Uh, But I would say my favorite era would be the Blonde Ambition era um, from the early 90s, the Galliano The Vogue. Yeah, Vogue. Yes, yes, yes. That's definitely like the Madonna. That is my favorite. Okay, but one last question that makes me think about this. When you have all these iconic roles that you're a part of from your past that people, I'm sure, like to bring up a lot, how do you navigate wanting to indulge people's nostalgia and looking back on your life and having these fond memories, but also not wanting to have to talk about these things. It's like, for me, I, I'm 31. I don't have to talk about things that I did when I was 10 or 11 ever. It's not something people ever have any interest in. Maybe they should. No, I'm just kidding. Uh, <laughs> but, um, but I'm curious, what is it like for you as someone who's a part of these things that people, they want to talk to you about them because they love them. But I imagine from your perspective, having to talk about them ad nauseum, micro tiresome, how do you balance that?
3: I had this movie that's coming out in... Um in December that's already getting a lot of critical acclaim. Like they've they showed it to a bunch of critics to see if it's as good as they think it is. And, and these critics have said, Oh my God, this is, this is great. So then they released this press release, uh, IFC, IFC picked it up and they released this press release that says something in something in the words of like Hunter, Hunter starring X teen heartthrob Devin Sawa, And I'm like, what <laughs> and i got so mad and i called my agents and i called my manager They're like how dare they i'm a serious actor this is horrible and then the next day i found myself on twitter like reposting a casper meme or something like that i was like you know you know what i mean it's it's i i just gotta understand that i'm I, it's a big part of you know, Casper and now and then is a big part of people's childhood and they want to talk about it. And I just got to accept that and kind of roll with it and know it's always going to kind of be that way. And so.
2: I will say from my perspective, I am so appreciative of an actor like you or who is willing to lean into that aspect of their identity. There are a number of celebrities who do the opposite, who really want to bury their past career. And I really find it detrimental to their overall legacy to sort of, not, I feel like they're not able to understand the way that people love them, which is their own journey to go on. But I feel like yeah. there's a lot of people who try and divorce themselves from different eras of their career. And it's yeah. nice to have someone like you. I feel this way, not to keep making it about Sarah Michelle Geller, but I, I feel like she had a period of time where she was really not wanting Buffy to be a part of her like identity because i'm sure right. i'm sure there was a way in which that was holding her back from getting roles for a period of time and i've i've seen her lean into it like you she now can post a buffy meme and
3: have a yeah. sense of humor about it and i yeah. find that so endearing well i do i never could understand harrison ford is the the, the big example of I, I, he's han solo and indiana jones but he doesn't want to talk about it <laughs> I mean, I, why? Right. Like, I gotta talk about Casper. You got Indiana Jones and Han Solo, and you don't want to talk about it. I mean, but I understand a little bit. You know, it gets it, it does get a little bit tiresome. But you know, I don't know. It's weird. It's,
2: it's fun weird though because in your instance, it's like you have new work to discuss. So I think it's really fun because it's like, you're not someone who, ex- who exists solely in nostalgia. You're someone who ha- who carries nostalgia for a lot of people, but also has um, continued film work that people can discuss and talk about. Yeah. So I'm really excited to see this upcoming feature that you mentioned.
3: Yeah, there's, an- there's another feature that I might be shooting in January. It's They're, they're in negotiate they're, they're working on But the director sent me a, a revised script and he goes, I just want to see if this to be okay with you. And one of my lines is something in, in something like... Uh, Oh man, I like that. I totally stand it. And I'm like, oh, I see. Um, I mean, we could, tweak it we could try it. We could shoot it. I don't know. It's, it's almost. I, I got Fred Durst into a lot of trouble on the fanatic because I improvised that one scene where, like, oh my God, this is, this is. I used to listen to this Limp Bizkit when I was a kid. This is the best music ever. And then it, it got, it, it was taken out of Fred's hands and went to another editor, and they put that back in the movie. And Fred Durst got shit on so bad because they thought he wrote it and put it in the movie himself, but I improvised it. <laughs> um, anyways, I, I'm going off in different directions. Now.
2: That's so funny. I want to thank you so, so much for your time. For those of you that don't know you personally, I mean, but they can get a window into you on the internet, but you are like such a nice person Person, you are such a nice person. You've always been so nice to me, and I don't take that for granted. And so, you have
3: as well. You've been very nice to me as well, and my family. So, thank thank you. you. Shut up, Evan. Shut up, Evan. Shut up, Evan. Hey, shut up, Evan.
2: Shut up, Evan is produced by Matt Storm, with associate production by Ryan Killian Krauss, and social media by Sean Ross. An extra special thank you to our Patreon supporters, without whom none of this would be possible.
0: Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus.